Right, okay, well we're gonna do two, sorry, not two, four talks on uh, Paul's letter to Titus, and uh, tonight will we'll be kind of like, you know, more by way of introduction than, than diving into the main the main part of the letter. So, in effect, uh, we're, we're just going to be doing the, um, the, the first four verses. Now, okay, um, let's, let, let's actually just, just read through them. It's, it's, it's only four <laughs> verses, so I'll read them. And it's Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect, and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. Okay, now then, when, when you get to Timothy and Titus, you've got 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and then Titus, they, in, in, in most of your Bibles, they'll, you'll find that they're lumped together with the title, The Pastoral Epistles. Now, that, that, that kind of way of designating them is is good and it, it's bad. It's it's good in the sense that when it talks about the pastoral epistles, it is indeed, you know, sort of like it's it's writing to people who are in leadership in churches and who therefore are to that extent pastoring the flock, as it were. So to that extent, calling them the pastoral epistles is good because it has an awful lot to say about godly leadership and what biblical leadership is all about. Now then, the reason that that designation is bad is because it procreates one of the most common misunderstandings you find in the Christian church, not just today, but throughout centuries. And it's this idea that, for instance, that Timothy and Titus the pastoral epistles, that Timothy and Titus were pastors of churches. Now, of course, when I use that phrase, what people think of is that obviously in the Christian setup, as it's always traditionally been, you have the leader of the church. You have some expert who comes in and he's been through college or been through seminary or something like that. And depending on which denomination you are, he'll, he'll be priest or minister or pastor or what have you. Okay. And it, it conjures up this picture that leadership in churches is that you bring this expert in from the outside and he's in charge of the church. He's the leader. He does it all. Now, of course, it's unfortunate that that's how people think of the pastoral epistles because, of course, there's no such thing as that in the New Testament. The New Testament knows nothing of the minister of the church, by which I mean the expert who comes in from the outside and it's his job to lead the church 
until he's called to go lead another one and you get someone else in, okay? Uh, there, there's nothing like that in the New Testament at all. And it would be a complete misunderstanding to think that Timothy and Titus were pastors of churches in that sense, because they weren't. So let's ask the question, so what were they then? Obviously we're going to be homing in on Titus, but it applies to both of them. Titus was not the minister of the church in Crete. He was not the pastor of the church. There is no such thing as that in Scripture. What Titus was, Titus was an apostle. Titus was on Paul's apostolic team. Now, when it comes to looking at Paul and his team, he, he was an apostle in a way that I, I tend to, to phrase, he was a hardcore apostle. Now, what I mean by that is this. Paul and those who worked with him, and they were a team, the members of the team changed, but Paul always worked in a team. Now, from the moment that Paul was sent out from Antioch to be what I'm calling a hardcore apostle, what he and those he worked with were doing is that they would go somewhere where the gospel had never been preached and they would live there. They would evangelize and then as they saw people converted, they do the work of evangelists and then as they saw people converted, they would remain amongst those people, form them into churches, disciple them, build them up in the faith and act as leaders amongst them until those churches were at the point where they could recognise their own elders from within. And at that point, the apostles, as it were, would move on and then they would go somewhere else, live there and do the whole thing all over again. And sometimes they'd go back and visit the churches that they'd already um, helped to start. But the point to understand about Paul and his apostolic team is that they were never really part of a church themselves in the sense that once Paul left Antioch, he was always with people he was evangelising and then forming them into churches. And so for that reason, obviously, because there's no such thing as a lone wolf in the Bible, hardcore apostles work as teams. Can you see that? They're actually like a travelling church. So that their accountability and their fellowship and strength together is the fact that they, they know each other well and they're working together in a team over a period of years, even though they're in different places all the team, uh, you know, all, all the time, like, you know, sort of like Corinth, for a few months and then Ephesus for a couple of years or whatever. The point is they're by and large together themselves most of the time and they're like a little travelling church. And Titus was one of Paul's apostolic workers, all right, yeah, you, know, to, you know, to maybe phrase it like that. And what had happened is that he presumably had been with, uh, with Paul when Paul was in Crete and he preached and people got converted and then more people got converted, and so there were disciples who needed to be formed into churches and brought to maturity. And so what Paul did is that Paul moved on and he left Titus in Crete to lead the churches until those churches 
were ready to recognise their own internal leadership or elders from amongst them. Because obviously, as we've seen, and we'll be coming back to this in the next talk, that leadership at the local church level is eldership, men who are raised up from within the church. They're not coming in from the outside. And they are the permanent leadership in a church. They're actually, they've been brought up in that church themselves. Now, what Titus was doing, he was temporarily acting as an elder to these churches, if you like. He wasn't an elder, he was an apostle, but acting like, as it were, a temporary elder, a temporary leader, until such time as these churches uh, could have their own, you know, sort of like men amongst them who had grown to sufficient maturity to be recognised as elders. And it is interesting uh, as well to just do a quick comparison between Paul and his team representing what I'm calling hardcore eldership, uh, sorry, hardcore apostles, in the sense that they were always travelling, always in new places, all right, and draw a comparison to Peter. Now, Peter represents another type of apostleship. Now, Peter was obviously an apostle, no question about it, and he had, he was able to evangelise, bring people to know the Lord, and then to build them up, form them into churches, and to pastor them in that sense. So Peter, because he was gifted to do that, was an apostle just like Paul was. But the big difference is this. When Peter writes his epistles, he refers to himself as an elder. And so what you've got is Paul represents a kind of an apostleship, by which I mean people evangelise, start churches, remain with those churches, train them up, and then move on and do it elsewhere. Peter represents, sorry, Paul represents an apostleship that was always on the move, whereas Peter represented an apostleship that moved around some but was mostly at a church back home. Can you see the difference? And that brings to light another difference between Paul and the guys on his team and someone like Peter. And the massive difference between them was this. Peter was married. And this is something that virtually, I've, I've, I've not come across anyone who makes a big deal about this. But to me, I think it's a very big deal. Because when you look at Paul, Timothy, Titus, Barnabas, and other people who work with Paul that we don't know anything about, but the ones that we do know about, what do they all have in common? They were single. Well, of course they were single. How can you be a family man travelling all the time? You can't. You're neglecting your family. I mean, you might be able to drag your family around a little bit here and there, but you can't do it all the time. So hardcore apostles are men who are single. They either have the gift of celibacy or they do it until such time as they get married and then they'll become an apostle more like Peter. So the point is that Peter, because he was a married man, he couldn't be traveling all the time. So he traveled some of the time, but most of the time was back home in a church. Therefore, he was a recognised elder. Whereas Paul, <clears throat> all the time travelling, can't be an elder because he's never in one church for long enough. 
if you see what I mean. And so there's a basic difference. And it's interesting because in 2 Corinthians, when Paul talks about the rights of an apostle, he says that apostles have the right to bring a believing wife with them. So the point is, in Scripture we see as well that if there are men who are called to travel a bit, but they're married, okay, you can't travel all the time if you're married, you're being irresponsible to your family. How can you hold your family together if you're not there? It's crazy. But if you do travel a bit, then the important thing is you take your family with you, you see. So Paul says an apostle, if he's travelling some, he has the right to bring a believing wife. Because the Bible never countenances the idea of unnecessary splitting up of families. You know, sort of like, you know, dad off for weeks and weeks at a time with mum and the kids back home. The Bible knows nothing about that. Family life has to be a lot tighter than that. And so basically, uh, you know, sort of what we're seeing is that Titus, himself a single man, was in one of, you know, these apostolic teams that I call hardcore apostle. Um, you know, now, you know, I suppose in some ways for myself, I mean, I'm not an apostle. Apostles are evangelists who can then form people into churches. I can't do that. That's not my calling. But I can form people into churches. And I'm, in Ephesians 4, you get like pastor teacher. Now, that's, that's more like me. But rather than doing it all the time, I'm like Peter. I travel out some. But most of the time, I'm just here, at home, you see. And so, you know, it's interesting to see these, these two different types of, of ministry, you know, ways of doing things. But it, it is tremendously important to realise that when you get these apostles who are all the time travelling, like Paul and his comrades were, they were single men. Whereas I say, Peter, who wasn't single, married, he, yeah, he was an apostle, and he travelled some, but most of the time was at home, and we know that because he was recognised as an elder, and that's what he refers to himself as being uh, when he writes to, to churches. And so basically then, what we've got <clears throat> is that Titus, he's on Paul's team, he works with Paul, They've been in Crete, which is where Paul is writing to Titus at. Titus is in Crete. So Titus, not the pastor of a church, there's no such thing, uh, but he was the apostle, and he had, Paul had left him with the churches to keep leading them until such time as they, they, they were able to recognise their, their own leadership you know, from within, okay. So, so, so that's the position that Titus is in. So this is not a letter written to the minister of a church, absolutely not. No, Titus is an apostolic delegate, call him what you will, and he's remaining in Crete, leading the churches there, it's clear that there's more than one, leading the churches there until such time as they don't need him anymore, and then he'll move off, rejoin Paul, and they'll go and start the whole thing over again, go somewhere where the gospel hasn't been preached and go and, and start the whole thing again. So that's, that's basically who, who Titus is. Um, he, he's not actually mentioned at all in the Acts of the Apostles, but he's mentioned 13 times elsewhere in the New Testament. So he's quite, you know, sort of quite a central figure and, uh, you know, was certainly one of, uh, you know, Paul's really close 
you know, kind of like um, friends, and you know, Paul refers to him as my son in the faith. So he was he was really important to Paul, and was clearly a capable and resourceful, you know, kind of guy, and uh, well well equipped to do what God had called him to do. So, and obviously, as we you know, sort of go through the letter, we're going to learn a lot about leadership and you know stuff like that, and it, it's a very it's a, a, a very, very informative, you know, letter specifically um, in that regard. Okay, but, but, you know, sort of like, you know, tonight we're more on intro and, and stuff like that. We're just really going to look at the, these first four verses, which is Paul's kind of greetings. It's really the opening of the letter, okay. And uh, in, in, in verse one, um, we're going to see that, that Paul... He, he refers to himself as, as being two things, all right? And he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. We're just going to quickly, you know, sort of look at those two things. We've already seen a bit about apostle, but we'll come to that shortly. But uh, fir first of all, he says, Paul, a servant of God. Now, this is, you know, Paul saying, this is what I am. H here we have a definition of how Paul saw himself. Now, in interestingly, uh, the word servant here is actually the completely wrong word. Um, the Greek um, for servant is diakonos, and it means a server of table. And it's, it's actually the same word we get deacon from in the New Testament. Um, so diakonos means servant. And that is someone who is a servant. So, you know, sort of like, you know, really, they're, they're doing a job, okay? That's what a servant does, you know, like Jeeves and Worcester and upstairs, downstairs, and all that sort of thing. But that's not the word here. The word here is doulos. And Paul says, I am a doulos of Jesus Christ. And this is a very significant word because it doesn't mean a servant. It means a slave. It's the word for slave. And it comes from um, the Greek verb, diu, which means to bind. And it literally means to be in bondage, which is what a slave is. So you could actually, you know, sort of like translate this Paul in bondage to God. And, and that's an amazing way to, you know, to describe yourself. And that's exactly what Paul does. I mean... Perhaps a more accurate translation here would be bond slave. That's, you know, that's really what Paul is, is, is saying. And when, when he refers to himself as a slave here, or not just here, he does it elsewhere um, too, but I, I think that th there are three things in his mind in calling himself a slave, and you know, they're very illuminating. And I think, I think the first thing that we can get out of this is that obviously he was perfectly aware, as are we all, that before he came to know the Lord, he was in bondage to Satan and in bondage to sin. So the point is, he realised, and isn't it true, when we came to know the Lord, isn't it that for the first time in our lives we realised we were slaves? You know, we, I mean, I, I was a free hippie, I thought, until that night I met the Lord, and I, no, I was a slave. I was a slave to Satan. In, in, in there's some, some group in there called Satan's Slaves, or something like that. I'm sure they're not very good. But, but, but that's the, you know, it's, it, 
exactly it. Unbelievers, they're slaves to Satan. The devil is the god of this world, and he's an absolutely merciless one too. I mean, in the Old Testament, you know, in the great picture that we've got of salvation with, you know, Israel being brought out of Egypt, Egypt, the world, and, and the taskmasters, the slave drivers, they picture personal sin, all right? But Pharaoh, the, the, the absolute merciless despot over the whole thing, he represents Satan. And so Paul, very aware that before he knew the Lord, that he was a slave without knowing it. He was in absolute slavery to Satan and to sin, and although he didn't know it, he was headed to an eternity, a complete eternity in the lake of fire. And so I think that's the first thing on his mind, that Paul knew that he was, before he came to know the Lord, that he was a slave. Now, one of the misconceptions, all right, that I think people have is, uh, is when we talk about freedom. Now, obviously, there's a real sense in which when we come to the Lord, he sets us free. But I think the second thing um, on Paul's, you know, sort of like mind, calling him a, a slave, is it's the realisation that actually there's, there's no such thing as freedom. There's no such thing as freedom. Because if, usually, when we think in terms of freedom... As, as sinners, we think in terms of freedom to do what you like. That, that, that's how we tend to think of freedom. Now, Paul realised that whereas once he was owned lock, stock and barrel by the devil, the moment he came to know the Lord, well then, he was owned lock, stock and barrel by the Lord. So, if you want to think in terms of freedom as being, I can do what I want, well, Paul was no more free then than he was before he was a Christian. You see what I mean? Only now, he was in bondage, obviously, to the Lord, who is absolutely wonderful. Uh, let's just, just, just read 1 Corinthians 6. It's one of my, you know, sort of like favourite verses, because it really br brings this out nicely. 1 Corinthians 6, and uh, read verse 19. Uh, the... Um, the context here is immorality, but, but, but the, the verse brings it out nicely. And he says, um, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. Now, we weren't our own when we were unbelievers. We were Satan's, all right? But are we our own now? Uh-uh. No, we're the Lord's now. And when he says, you were bought with a price, now what's that referring to? That's ransom, isn't it? We've been redeemed. Ransomed from the slave market of sin. So we were slaves in the world, as it were, but now we're slaves to God. And that's, you know, what Paul is, is kind of thinking of here. That, uh, you know, we've come out of Satan's ownership, but now we are owned by the Lord. So we are not our own. I mean, I'm not free to do, um, you know, sort of like what, what I want to do. God owns me. God owns you. Now, think about it. If you own something, is it free to do what you want? Um, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, I, I, you know, I own my laptop upstairs at the moment. Now, if I'm working on that, if I double-click on Word... I don't expect my laptop to decide 
that it's going to open works or a Photoshop or something like that. That does what I tell it to. That's a bad example, actually, because my computer has got a mind of its own. But you know what I mean. I mean, I can double-click on one thing and anything can happen. But you know what I mean. Or I don't expect to get in my car and I want to drive to Loughton and it takes me to Onga. And it's, it's exactly the same with, with, with us and the Lord, that, that, that even though, yeah, we're his children and he set us free and all that, yes, absolutely. But as I'm saying, we mustn't think of freedom in terms of being free to do what we like, okay? So the point is, we have freedom from Satan. We have freedom from sin. But what this means is we are now free to be slaves to God. It's not a freedom. And, you know, there is this, you know, and it's also kind of, uh, you know, sort of, oh, I, I, I don't know. It's, you know, it's just a thinking that you come across with so many Christians, almost as if there's a separation between the fact that I'm saved and going to heaven and that I ought to live a holy life, as if living a holy life is kind of optional. Now, obviously, I, I, I am convinced from Scripture that you can't lose your salvation. And I'm very glad that you can't lose your salvation. But, you know, lots of people, when they realise I believe that, they get all worried. Oh, so you're saying that, oh, you can just live how you like and go to heaven. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that at all. We need to understand that having been brought into the kingdom of God, out of the kingdom of Satan, we're his slaves. We ought to be living in obedience to him. So in the same way that I expect my possessions to be controlled by me, God expects to be able to control us. He wants obedience from us. So we must never ever think in terms of being independent from him. The freedom we have is freedom from sin. It's not freedom to do whatever we like. And so this is important to realise we're children of God. Yes, and that's wonderful. I mean, Abba Father, he's, God is our Father. Jesus is big brother. And uh, you know, not, not in the bad Orwellian sense, but in the nice sense, you know, my big brother who looks after me. And yeah, all that is absolutely right. And, 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 and Jesus said, I, I no longer call you servants, but friends. And all that applies. But nevertheless, Paul still absolutely considered himself to be in slavery to God. Because at the end of the day, even though now we're Christians, we actually live day to day in slavery to him, or we live in slavery to our sinful nature. Who wants to live in slavery to their sinful nature now that we're saved? So, yeah, Paul really had this, this sense that he was so sold out to God that Jesus had ransomed him, brought him out of the slave market of sin, but now he wasn't just you know, out of that slave market. He's out of the wrong slave market, but now he's gone to into a brilliant slave market because he's the slave of an owner who is the most wonderful owner you can imagine. And that, I think now, bring, brings me on to the, the third thing that I think was in Paul's mind when he talked about himself being a slave. And it is one of these really brilliant pictures in the Old Testament of what it means to be a Christian. Because under the law... Um, you know, the Mosaic law. If you got into debt or, you know, sort of like, you know, your creditors were after you and stuff like that, what you could do is you could sell yourself into slavery for seven years, all right? So, and it, 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 
it was a way of getting out of debt, all right? So you could actually become a slave. Now, you were owned by your master whilst you were a slave, all right? Um, you know, but you decided, as it were, to become a slave yourself because you needed, you know, sort of like the money or whatever. But basically, when you became a slave under the terms of, you know, the Mosaic Law, you would be committed for seven years. So you had to do your seven years. At the end of the seven years, you got set free. But what that slave was free to do, if he so wanted, is that if he really did get on well with his new master, and although, I mean, slavery is is a two-sided thing. There's the really awful, terrible, horrible slavery, you know, like in Roots and, and all that, the really dreadful evil stuff. And yeah, if you know, if you had bad masters then in the New Testament, obviously that, that was there and it was awful. But on the other hand, you know, you remember, you know, sort of Joseph, you know, sort of when he went into slavery and Potiphar. I mean, Potiphar virtually handed over his business to Joseph. You can see what I mean? There could be a relationship between a slave and his master that was very close. It could be a respectful business relationship, or a slave could even become a member of the family. And that is what could happen under the Mosaic Law. That if that slave found that he ended up in such a good relationship with his master, and you know, sort of like the family, then there was the freedom, if everyone so wanted to do, that he could actually virtually become no longer a slave, but a member of the family. You see what I mean? So his slavery could lead into actually becoming a member of the family with all the rights that the rest of the family had. Now, when that happened, what they would do, they would pierce his ear. And there's that chorus we sing, pierce my ear, isn't there? And that's what it's about. It's when under the law a slave actually entered into the family as one of the family, whereas before he had just been a slave. And again, if you think about it, isn't that a wonderful picture of being God's children? You know, this balance where we're his slaves, but we are his children as well. We are in his family. And so that it, it's a slavery of love. It's, I mean, arguably, if you fall in love and marry someone, you're a slave to your spouse. But is that a misery? Well, it might depend on who you married, I suppose. But if you love your wife, it's not a misery. It's a, it, it's a good slavery. You want to be so that you can't get away from them, which is what slavery is. If you know, and and, and so you know, I think that's a. A lovely picture there. And of course, in the Christian life, the two things go together, love and service. It's not a question now, well, I mean, am I, am I God's child and I, am I in a relationship of love? Or am I his servant and am I in a relationship of servitude to him? Well, the answer is both, isn't it? I mean, you know, Jesus loved the church. What did he do? He came to serve, didn't he? So if love serves, it's never, well, so what? Am I... Am I God's child or am I his servant? If you love someone, you'll serve them. And so we're both. We're God's children and yet we're his servants as well. And of course it's absolutely vital to understand this. And it's, it's our service and our obedience to him that is the evidence of our love. 
Anyone can say, I love God. But where's the evidence? The evidence has got to be in that obedience and that service. Uh, let's just uh, go, go to a couple of... Let's get, uh, verse in John, John 14. It's a good verse to, to read here. John 14 and verse 15. And Jesus said, If you love me, you will obey what I command. So, that's the evidence. If we love him as his children, we're going to serve him. We're going to be obedient. I mean, children, obey your parents. Well, you know, obviously. And so any question of, 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 of a divide, you know, that you can be saved and going to heaven, but it doesn't really matter about being sold out to the Lord. I mean, you know, that, it's, I mean, that, that is just perverse thinking. The Bible knows nothing of that kind of thinking. If we are Christians... If we, you know, if, if, if we're going to heaven, then we're going to heaven on a little bit of heaven, serving the Lord and, and, and you know, and seeking to live a godly life. Okay. Right, so there you have it, Paul, a bond slave, because that, that will be the better uh, translation. And then secondly, he said an apostle. So as he writes to Titus, he uses these two, two terms. I've already said a bit about him being an apostle and you know obviously we covered apostleship in the the church life series didn't we in some detail and you remember I basically defined it as to boldly go where no man has gone before now remember I get all my teaching from the Bible and reruns of Star Trek so you know and it's just breaking new ground for the Lord and of course the hardcore apostles I mean they were literally preaching the gospel where it had never been heard and bringing people to the Lord and then, uh, you know, kind of, um, you, you know, building them into churches. But of course, Paul was also, like Peter, an apostle in another unique sense as well, um, in the sense that, that these were the guys who were given the teaching that, you know, that, you know, sort of Jesus said to the, uh, you know, the twelve, you know, that he said, there's so much more I want to teach you. When the Holy Spirit comes, he'll lead you into all the truth. And of course, the point is, it was through the apostles that we have the New Testament. So there was a uniqueness about people like Paul and Peter in the sense that what they taught and what they wrote was the infallible word of God. So they, they, they spoke with an authority that came directly from the Lord himself. Now, that, that was unique. That's gone now. Because the authority we have is not a kind of a direct authority. You know, I mean, Paul could say, I command you this. And there was no way of testing it. You accepted it because he was an apostle or you didn't. Now, no man can say, I command you to do this. You know, no, it's, is it in the Bible, if you see what I mean? So, so the point is that Paul, you know, had that uniqueness in the sense that, you know, his teaching was infallible and he had an authority, just like, you know, the rest of them, because, you know, it does seem to me that Paul did replace Judas. Um, you know, and obviously once those guys died, a unique apostleship died with them. You know, there's no one today who's, um, you know, kind of a teaching is infallible or anything like that, because we have the New Testament, so everything is tested by the Word of God. But, of course, those guys, they're the ones who gave it to us. Okay. But uh, what I really want to home in on is, is, is these, you know, this, this aspect of being an apostle, because he talks, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Now, obviously, what you've got here is that Paul sees his apostleship as all about imparting faith. That's what it's all about, imparting faith in Jesus to other people. But there's, there's two sides to it. I mean, the first is obviously that because he was an apostle, you know, and a directly hardcore evangelistic one, that he was obviously imparting faith where it hadn't been before. To that extent, he was an evangelist. Now, very quickly, the difference between an evangelist and apostle is this. An apostle is an evangelist as well, but an evangelist isn't an apostle. Now, what does that mean? Apostles... Hardcore apostles, okay, they can do the work of an evangelist, so they preach the gospel, people get converted, but what the apostles can then do is they've got all the necessary gifts to build those people together and nurture them in the faith. So they're also pastors and teachers. You see the point? Whereas, if you've got someone who's just an evangelist, well, he's good at evangelizing and bringing people to the Lord. I mean, he's great at doing that. But normally he's hopeless with people because evangelists, they're no good, you know, for nurturing people. They just don't have that gift, if you see what I mean. And you remember when Philip, now in the Bible, Philip, he, he's the only example we've got in the Bible of someone who's an evangelist as opposed to an apostle. So Philip was, if you like, merely an evangelist. Now, when he went to Samaria, he proclaimed to them the Christ, he evangelized, people got saved. But what did he do then? He baptized them, but then what did he do? He brought the apostles in from Jerusalem, and they laid hands on them, and they were baptized with the Spirit, and then they formed them into churches and nurtured them, if you see what I mean. So, so the difference between an apostle and evangelist, an evangelist just evangelizes, brings you to the Lord, and then he's best moving on, because he's no good, you know, nurturing you. He's, he's probably so obsessed with evangelism anyway. Evangelists are, and I mean, it's part of their function, but they often expect everyone else to be, so they're hopeless pastors, because they just turn everything they touch into evangelistic meetings, which, which is hopeless if you need to nurture people. Whereas, uh, you know, an apostle is everything an evangelist is, but they're pastor teachers as well. But there are other people, and this would be more me, who are just pastors and teachers. So I'm an hopeless evangelist, all right. You know, I mean, you know, sort of me one-on-one with people. I mean, they become Muslims, all right. I mean, I'm just not very good at that. But what my calling is, I can nurture people and teach them, if you see what I mean. But the point about the apostles is they could do it all. They could do it all, you see. And, uh, you know, so... um, you know, so Paul here, obviously, that he's talking in terms of imparting faith. And obviously, initially, imparting faith for the first time, bringing people to the Lord. But then, bringing people to grow in that faith. That's the important thing. So, there, there's, there's so much evangelism goes on that people get saved and then they get dropped. You can see what I mean, almost left to themselves. Or they're, they're purely funneled into churches and then, okay, now, what can you give this church? And they're, they're just a portion to whatever, you know, or, or people try and turn them into evangelists themselves or something like that. But Paul's concern was not just to bring people to the Lord, but to nurture them. 
So it's not just bringing people to the Lord, but enabling them to grow in him from that point onwards. And of course, this is tremendously important for us. Even though we're not apostles, this is part of what a church is for. I mean, you know, obviously, yeah, any opportunity we've got to tell people about the Lord, and we've seen people get saved, and that's great. But the point is, if someone is saved and they become one of God's children, well then it's vital that they're nurtured and raised. Then it's like a mum and dad having kids. You don't say, oh great, we've had another kid, and just move on and have the next one. You look after what you've got, and that's an absolutely vital aspect of, 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 of church life. And of course, you know, one of the, you know, what Jesus said was make disciples of all nations. Whereas so much of Christianity today is in effect just going for converts. Can you see the difference? Rather than really nurturing people so that they really are growing in the Christian life and that they really are serving the Lord properly. I mean, I, you know, living out what it means to be slaves to God rather than having just got saved, and okay, now I'm going to heaven, and then just leading some sort of superficial Christian life, which is a mixture of, well, a bit of heaven now, but there's still lots of the world in it. You know, do, do you know what I mean? We need to nurture people so that they really are more and more turning their back on the world and everything about the world that is wrong and is, is, is evil. And, uh, and, and, and notice as well that when he talks about faith, he doesn't talk about faith in complete isolation, but he says, and the knowledge of the truth. And that's tremendously important because there's a relationship between faith and truth. Again, so much on the Christian scene today, it's faith, faith, faith. The emphasis is on faith. Now, obviously, I'm not saying we shouldn't have trust in Jesus, but what I'm saying is you can separate faith out from truth until it's almost just faith. It's, it's, it's not attached to anything at all. And, of course, the point is, if faith is, and, and often I define it, F-A-I-T-H, forsaking all I trust him, all right? In order for faith to grow, we've got to grow in our knowledge of the truth in understanding what it is that Jesus wants for us, if you see what I mean. If growing in faith means growing in trust in Jesus, then it means that we need to know in what ways we're meant to trust him what he wants from us, how he wants to change us. And that is kind of, that is linked to the truth, if you see what I mean. And of course, the only way that we can grow in our knowledge of the truth is obviously really getting into Scripture. And so obviously, we can see that teaching, you know, whether kind of, you know, up front type like I'm doing now, but obviously just you know on our own reading the Bible and just helping to nurture each other. That teaching is a tremendously important aspect of the Christian life. That all of us we need to be growing more and more in the truth. And of course the truth is contained in the Bible. And so therefore Bible teaching and growing in our you know our knowledge of what it teaches is tremendously important. And again Again, something where churches today seem very, very weak. There's such poor emphasis on, on the vital importance of ongoing, systematic Bible teaching. 
you see what I mean? Rather than just little 20 minute sermonettes where there's a nice little thought and something like that and a little sentiment for the day. That's, that, that's no good. That, that's not meat that feeds people so that they grow spiritually, all right? And, uh, you know, I mean, in order to, to, to be progressively following the Lord, we need to progressively be progressively learning three things. So we need to know all the time what the Lord is like, so as we grow in our knowledge of scripture, we're growing in our knowledge of what sort of person he is, where, what he's like. And then secondly, we need to grow in our knowledge of what we are like. You see what I mean? Understanding how he needs to deal with us. Understanding what our sinfulness means and how he wants to work in order to overcome it. If we don't know ourselves properly, we can't really get, you know, get to know him in the way that we ought to do. Because if, if progressively, if we're, you know, sort of like moving all the time out of the old life into the new life that we've got in Jesus, we've got to, you know, to understand the work he's doing in us and what it means to, to, to be undergoing this process of being delivered from the power of sin in our lives. And then the third thing we need to know is how we forsake what needs to be forsaken in order for this growth to go and you know to occur and of course this is you know the really unpopular bit in so many churches um you know we we you know sort of obviously we get converted we bring the world's thinking in with us but what we're meant to, to, to happen is that the world's thinking is, you know, cleansed out of us by the word of God. And we start to thinking according to what the Bible says. Whereas, you know, sort of like, you know, in Christianity Day, there's such a, an incredible mishmash. There's the world's philosophy mixed in with what the Bible teaches. And, you know, I mean, sort of, you know, classic example, the feminism we see today. You know, there's what the Bible teaches about God's order for family and the difference, you know, sort of like between the genders. And that's so much. And it's absolutely vital. Okay. And yet, what do we see today? We want to go with modern psychology. We want to go with modern philosophy. You know, we want to, you know, to break down the differences between husbands and wives and men and women. And it's absolutely disastrous. But it's because the philosophy of the world is less controversial than what the Bible teaches. And so obviously it's vital that as we grow in knowledge of the truth, but at the same time that we're willing to really kind of live by it as well. But there's no doubt that faith, true faith, can only grow in relationship to an increased knowledge of the truth. Whereas on the Christian scene today, as I say, faith, the emphasis is on faith, but it's divorced from truth. Can you see what I mean? It's just faith in Jesus, faith in Jesus. You know, you go to meetings and they're more about whipping you up into a frenzy than they are about genuine worship or, you know, or teaching the word of God. And, you know, it's just faith, 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 almost for the sake of it. And because it's not attached to truth, it's just nebulous. And so people don't really grow in the Lord. Because they're trying to grow in faith without realizing that unless faith is linked to truth, what are you growing in? You know, so all the time understanding that we need to be growing in our, our, our knowledge of scripture. But then he says a third thing as well. He says, 
obviously for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth but then he says that leads to godliness and so we're back to this thing about leading a holy life because whereas faith on its own if you just emphasize faith that can end up wishful thinking you know all this stuff out there that if you just have faith you know you're going to win the pools or something you know you, God's going to make you rich yeah, if, if you've just got faith in isolation, that just turns into wishful thinking. But on the other hand, if truth is separated from godliness, then truth can just be head knowledge. You see what I mean? And, you know, I mean, any of us have the potential to turn into that sort of Christian. There are Christians who have tremendous knowledge of the Bible, but Paul says knowledge puffs up. So, obviously, there's a great danger that one could even end up just getting into the Bible just for the pure sake of understanding it intellectually. And then the temptation is obviously to show it off to everyone else. No, Paul says here that leads to godliness. Can you see, that's the whole point. So the thing is that, 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 that one, one really knows when faith and knowledge of the truth is genuine because it will be issuing in a progressive godliness in the person's life. You see what I mean? And that's what it all boils down to. That That's where the rubber actually hits the road. Because obviously, we're perfectly aware one can debate and talk about the truth till you're blue in the face. And, I mean, it is good to debate and talk about the truth. It's part of how we learn. But we all know it can be left there at purely head knowledge, can't it? You know, one can have great debates about what the Bible teaches about, for instance, you know, sort of God's order for family life. And then you can go home and still be an unloving husband. Can't you? I mean, it's, you know, the rubber has got to hit the road, and it's godliness. And if we think about it, godliness, um, you know, the actual, you know, Greek word comes from, uh, you know, sort of like the word that means devout, and it's, uh, you know, a, a you know, it, it, it's sort of like a, a, a sincere, committed attitude of doing what is pleasing to God. That's that's you know that's that's kind of what what comes over in the Greek. But I you know I define godliness at the end of the day as being like Him, being like God. That's what godliness is. And there's that verse, isn't it? You know, the Old Testament. You know, be holy as I am holy. I mean, crumbs, that's amazing. So, literally, if we're God's children, if it's true like father, like son, you know, I mean, we pass on our characters and, and everything, you know, we pass on things that we are through, you know, genetically to our children. Now, spiritually, God has passed on to us. We have the nature of Jesus. We, we have a new nature. And so, therefore, it ought to be like father, like son. We ought to be like God. Now, obviously, that's a progressive thing, all the time becoming more so, but that is what it is all about. And so, that is, Paul, that is what his ministry was all about. For him, an apostle, it was bringing people to know the Lord, so that was the evangelistic thrust. But then it was nurturing them. It was forming them into churches, because obviously unless people are formed into churches, you can't grow in the Lord unless you're properly in fellowship with other people. And in fellowship with other people, you can kind of just go to a building every Sunday of your life with the same people and 
do, you know, sit through a service and listen to a sermon. And yeah, okay, you know, you can say you're in fellowship, but that's not really what the Bible means at all. The fellowship of church life that the Bible talks about, as obviously as we know, is, is something much more intimate, it's much more accountable, it's much more like an extended family rather than an organisation called a church where lots of people see each other in the religious building each Sunday. That's, that's not enough for real growth. So Paul knew that you had to form people together into churches which were just as Jesus had taught them to do, you know, sort of like, a, you know, sort of like where it was like a family, it was small, meeting in homes and open for everyone to take part, eating together the Lord's Supper. That's intimacy and in those close relationships over years, that's how it happens. So Paul knew it wasn't just a question of getting people into the kingdom, but looking after them and, and nurturing them so that the, the ultimate goal is that all the time they would be becoming more and more godly. And he knew that that meant teaching them the truth, but he didn't want to leave it there. He didn't just want people who knew doctrine. It all had to boil down to godliness, actually growing in being more and more like the Lord. Okay, and so that's really what you know. We in you know in our lives, you know, it doesn't mean we're all apostles. Of course not. Doesn't mean we're all evangelists. Of course not. But obviously, any opportunities we get, we tell people about the Lord. And we've seen people get converted and come into the church. But the vital thing is then that we nurture, that we don't just kind of leave it there, that it's kind of wanting to see people grow in the Lord, growing in knowledge, and but growing in godliness as well. And of course, the very best way to do that is that anyone new comes in, so who's just got converted, the... The, the thing that's going to help them to do that more than anything else is if they can see that that's true of each one of us. You see what I mean? If they see us growing in the Lord still, you know, not a kind of, well, I've arrived, now you're just starting, listen to me, but them seeing that we're, we're all in the same boat. Yeah, some of us may be further down the road than others, um, you know, but yeah, that, that we're all in the same boat. We, we all need to be to be growing in the Lord. And of course, the other thing about that is that even if we have seen people come to know the Lord, if in our determination to be growing and more and more conforming to his word, becoming more and more, you know, sort of godly, that for some people who become Christians, that does actually get, you know, sort of like the kitchen gets a bit too hot for them. And, you know, sort of like, we've, we've seen that, haven't we? We've seen people who got converted. I don't doubt they got converted, but they just didn't want to go the whole hog in the same way that we have. Uh, you know, we've seen that, and, you know, and, and it's, it, it's sad. And when that happens, obviously, we can't compromise. You don't, you don't dumb it down. You don't lower the bar and say, well, okay, yeah, be, be a worldly Christian then, do you? You know, I mean, obviously we can only encourage each other and anyone to be growing in godliness. That's ultimately what it's all about. So, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's, it's tough, but that is what true discipleship is, okay. And, uh, and then in, in verse 2, he carries on, and he says, "...of faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life." He said it's got to lead to godliness... But now he says, 
it rests on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And, I mean, that's the, you know, that's that's just the most wonderful bit, that, that we are going to be with the Lord. I mean, obviously, in the New Testament, we've seen this before. When the New Testament talks about hope in this context, it's not kind of like, I hope it won't rain tomorrow, or, you know, I... I, you know, hope they repeat Star Trek soon on TV, you know, or I hope hope I don't miss Star Trek next week. I mean, that, you know, because there's no certainty in that. No, the Bible is talking about absolute certainty. So hope is simply faith projected into the future. It's a certain knowledge. And, of course, it's based on the simple fact that, of course, God doesn't lie. So we are going to be with the Lord and if so be we've put our faith in Jesus as our saviour, nothing is going to be able to stop that. And so therefore, I come back to what I said earlier, given that we're going to heaven, the joy is to be going to heaven on a little bit of heaven. You see what I mean? And so we're back to, you know, when we're thinking in terms of, of godliness and living a holy life, we're not talking about something that's, you know, sort of some bind or something like that. This is something, it, it should be a joy. Now, I'm not saying there isn't suffering and failure on the way. Of course there is. You know, the Lord understands that. We get there through failure and repentance and picking ourselves up and starting again in the Lord. Yeah, that's, that's how we get there. But the point is, it should be something that, you know, we do yearn for. Jesus talked about people hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And when you think that righteousness isn't a horrible thing, it's, it's, it's a most wonderful thing. And so therefore, you know, knowing that we've got this absolute hope of eternal life, promised by God before the beginning of time, well, you know, sort of like, how, how can one then sort of think, well, you know, let's just be carnal Christians, let's, let's just put our feet up, it doesn't matter, we'll... You know, we'll get on with the world, we'll compromise, we'll, we'll accommodate to the unbelievers. Now, you, 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 you know, you can't do that. It's, it's kind of whole hog when, when you follow the Lord. Let's just, absolutely, you know, just go to John, read some verses. John 10. Because um, this is what kind of like spurs us on. John 10 and verse 27. And um, Jesus said, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. And of course, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, you know, did, did, did you become a sheep because you heard Jesus' voice and became a Christian? Or did you become a Christian because you heard his voice because you were his sheep? You know, can you see what I mean? And, uh, and he says... I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, this is what I call our double security, because what Jesus is talking about here, um, I mean, if we were to ask, 
who are two of the most powerful persons in the universe, then the Father and Jesus, along with the Holy Spirit, would be in there, wouldn't they? I mean, that's it. They are the most powerful. So Jesus says, first of all, um, no one can snatch them out of my hand. So you become a Christian, you're in Jesus' hands. No one can get to you, all right? But then he says, my Father, who has given them to me, so, did you give yourself to Jesus, or did the Father give you to him? Hmm, because you were his anyway. Oh, anyway, that's not the subject for tonight. But the point is, then Jesus says that no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. So, you've got this picture, we're in Jesus' hand. Now, Jesus, he said, I am the Father of one. Jesus is in the Father. So, where are we? We're in Jesus, in the Father. I mean, how secure do you want to be? And, you know, so, so you know, and, and, and it's like um, in the playground, remember, like, you know, at school, like, my dad can beat your dad up, my dad's bigger than your dad, all right? Well, Jesus said that his dad is greater than all. So the point is, who on earth, I mean, can, can, can Satan, Satan get us out of his hand? Of course not. Satan's nothing. God is the greatest power in the universe there is no power greater than him. Therefore, how can anything remove us from being in him? So we've got this double security. We're in Jesus, in the Father. And of course, in Colossians, uh, Paul <coughs> makes the phrase, he says, <coughs> your life is hid with Christ in God. And he says exactly the same thing. Because obviously he read the gospel, you see. Well, he probably heard it from Jesus when he was in heaven with him. So the point is, you know, this is this absolute double security. Now, in the light of that, how can one but follow the Lord? You know, you, you see. And, the, you know, what's, what's interesting in the Bible is the, the, the incentive that there is to holy living, all right, in, in the Bible is not... If you're not holy, you'll go to the lake of fire. I mean, that's not, you know, I mean, you know, that that's just not it. The incentive to holiness is not saying be holy, because if you're not, I'll throw you out and you'll end up in the lake of fire just like the unbelievers. The incentive to holiness is that you are going to be with me in glory. So start being holy now. That, that, that's the call. It's not be holy or else. That's not how God deals with us. It's you're going to be with me in glory. So be transformed from one degree of glory to another now. See what I mean? It's not a punitive thing. It's only be frightened of. It's be holy because that's the most wonderful way to live. That's, that's the whole point. So our security... You know, don't don't ever kind of, oh, you know, if I'm not holy, I'm going to, you know, God's going to throw me out. No, the security is that push towards holiness. Because how can you be anything but thankful to the Lord? And at least yearning, say, Lord, you know, make me holy. Lord, just have your way in my life. However badly we're doing, that should be the, the, the prayer of you know of our hearts Lord have have your way in, you know in, in my life and you know do do whatever is needed Lord in me to you know to sort of like you know to be causing me to be living a godly life okay and um, and then in verse 3 he says and at his appointed season he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted me 
by the command of God our Saviour. And that's how Paul saw things. It was command. It was command. And of course, what's interesting, even in Acts, when we look at the evangelism that we see in the Acts of the Apostles, and obviously Paul, Paul was no different, we know from the Acts of the Apostles that the heart of the evangelism, the gospel they preached, was obviously they proclaimed to them the Christ. That's one of the ways that Acts describes their preaching. All right. Certainly they were preaching Jesus, repent, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But also, it says, God commands all men everywhere to repent. See? Now, that's a very different evangelism to what we're used to, isn't it? The evangelism we're much more used to today is, is kind of, oh, Jesus loves you so much. Oh, you're so special to him. Oh, how can you how can you not follow Jesus? He will bless you so much if you follow him. Do you see what I mean? It's almost an appeal, you know, it's got this this rather weak God, and almost that you can do him a favour by by following him, and of course you'll be doing yourself a favour as well, because he'll bless you and you won't go to the lake of fire. Now that's a very far cry from what we see in the New Testament. The New Testament is look, you are sinners under the judgment of a holy God, he commands you to repent. And of, of further interest, you know, and I of, often say this, is that if, if, if there was the, the closest thing, if there's anything in the New Testament that might even vaguely equate to a manual for evangelism, or by definition, it's going to be the Acts of the Apostles. I'm not saying it is a manual for evangelism in that sense, but it's the closest we've got, isn't it? And what's interesting, the word love does not appear once in the entire book of Acts. And that's just interesting, because when it comes to evangelism, we're obsessively on about the love of God all the time, aren't we? No, not the New Testament church. They were God commands all men everywhere to repent. And so, you know, Paul always had this incredible sense of command, that he was under God's command. I mean, indeed, he was only a believer because God had commanded him to become a believer. And, and, and if you think about it, command, it carries with it authority, doesn't it? Command, you've got to do something because you've been told to do it by a proper authority. Now, that's the opposite of rebellion. What is the essence of sin? It's rebellion. And the last thing that sinners want is any idea that they've been commanded to do anything. And so therefore an evangelism that is commanding people to repent because they're sinners under God's judgment, well, that's guaranteed to put people off. And yes, it will put people off, but I'll tell you, it won't put anyone off who genuinely wants to know the Lord. You see what I mean? In fact, it will be the very means that causes them to come to know the Lord. But of course, what... What is it so easy to do? Let's dumb the gospel down so it sounds good to unbelievers. You know, you know, we want to project this, you know, this, this loving God, and, and I'm not saying God isn't loving, but rather than project, you know, a God who will throw you into the lake of fire if you don't repent. So obviously, yes, God is love, but God is not the sort of love that the world wants him to be. Because the world wants him to be the sort of God that says you can have all your sin and that too. And you can't. 
So therefore God commands all men everywhere to repent. And so Paul, he saw everything about his own life, his own calling, and therefore the gospel that he preached and, and the, the truth that he, he taught to people who got saved, it was all a question of command. Because this isn't about us doing anything that we want to do. This is all about doing the will of God. It's all about God being absolutely sovereign in our lives. It's all about Jesus being Lord, okay? And, uh, yeah, and we, you know, sort of like, there was no compromise in Paul, and in, in that sense, there shouldn't be any compromise in us either. And uh, then, then in verse 4, he says to Titus, My true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our saviour and there there you see you know sort of like you know the love that you know that paul has he 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 talks about timothy being his son in the faith now it's it's clear that timothy and titus were both young men now not necessarily maybe in their 20s but maybe 30s but young men but the relationship that paul had to them was was that of a father it wasn't, you know, and again, this is back to understanding relationships in the kingdom of God. Because even though, I mean, obviously, because they were young men, all right, they would have, in the context of the team, they would obviously be considered to be subordinate to Paul. Of course they was, you know, they were. He'd been a Christian for many years longer than them. But what's interesting, because remember, Jesus, you know, sort of like said that in the church, it, you know, it mustn't be like the Gentiles lording it over each other. I.e. what Jesus is saying, in church life, there's no hierarchy. Leadership is not hierarchical in the church, is it? And, and we see here that even with Paul and his team, that he relates to them as a father to a son, not as I'm in charge. You can see what I mean. It's not, I'm the, you're working for me. It's a father and son. It's always family. It's always born of relationships and mutual love. And so, you know, it's, it's I mean, I've, you know, sort of come across, you know, enough situations, brought, you know, sort of across the broad sweep of the kingdom of God out there. And I can certainly tell you, especially when it comes to what most people think of in terms of ministry and stuff like that, then, you know, sort of like the big cheeses out there do not relate to younger people like their sons. They're like chief executive officers. And you're the plebs. And and obviously that's the setup in most churches, isn't it? Like the minister, he's the, the big cheese, and you're the pleb. I mean, he may be a lovely guy. He might not actually treat you like that. But the problem is the system is designed to be hierarchical. Whereas, you know, Paul, he would relate to these guys that he was working with, um, you know, he, he, he'd relate to them as sons. And it was a very lovely relationship. It, it wasn't based on I'm in charge and you do what I say. And, and it was just, you know, very much like, like Jesus is him, himself. And so it's all the time back that the church is a family of God. And, uh, you know, it's not a, an institution that lots of people are members of and you have services and your big leaders and stuff like that. Church is family. And each church, each of these churches that Titus was nurturing, they were just like little extended families. And when they came together on Sundays, whatever house they were in, 
they would have open, you know, gathering, everyone free to take part, the worship, praying, sharing together, everyone free to take part as the Lord leads, no one leading, anything like that. They, they'd eat the meal together, the church, love feast, you know, the Lord's Supper. And it was, and this is what Titus was teaching them, because this is what Jesus handed on to the apostles. Everything was family, 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 born of close mutual relationships and never any sense of, well, there's the leader, you do what he says. And even on Paul's apostolic team, he would relate to people, family, not as the boss, not as the guy who was in, in charge. And then he just says, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. And if you, we haven't got time to do it now, if you go through every letter that Paul wrote, you'll find it begins with grace and it ends with grace. The very last words of his letter to Titus is grace be with you all. So every letter Paul writes, he starts it off with the grace of God and he ends it with the grace of God. Because of course he was aware that everything absolutely everything of the Christian life is God's grace and again we've defined grace before haven't we G-R-A-C-E God's riches at Christ's expense and what does what does grace boil down to what's what's the definition of grace in the Bible well it boils down to undeserved kindness that's what grace means Someone who's gracious is someone who relates to you, not in the way you deserve, but precisely in the way you don't deserve, and for your blessing. And so the whole point is that because of the love that he set on us, we have precisely what we don't deserve. And we're never going to get what we do deserve. Now that's, that's grace. I mean, we're, we're home dry. We are secure. We, we will never... We will never, we will no more face God's judgment that's coming on this world than Noah drowned in the flood because he was given an ark and that ark was waterproof. And our salvation is me-proof. You know, as I always say, if salvation could be lost, I couldn't sleep at night. I could have no assurance. I wouldn't lose it. But praise the Lord, it doesn't depend on me. It depends purely on Jesus and on the grace of God. Okay, so I think we'll leave it there for, for Paul's introduction and then next week we'll, we'll, we'll dive into the main content of the letter and we'll certainly be looking quite a bit in the next talk at the uh, whole area of eldership.